Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight, we have our resident insomniac, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. I am so freaking tired. I got I got that impression. Sounds like you he sounds like you and sleep are not on speaking terms. The weird thing is, you know, a couple weeks ago I could not sleep at all for an entire week. Then I slept solid. And then last night my brain just ex- it woke up at two o'clock said, Hey, it's five AM. You should get up, go to the gym. But it was two o'clock. So it wasn't five. So I stared at the ceiling for three hours and thought about how how horrible my life was. How only my audience kept me going. Oh man, have you seen the viewership, the listenership numbers? Though I don't know, is that enough to keep you going? Do we need to keep growing it? It'll get me going this year. Come January, I could die. Oh my god! So tell your friends. Yeah, better so, you know, review us, rate us on iTunes. Uh, yeah, tell all your friends about this great strategy podcast. Uh, but speaking of. Our listenership, uh, we sort of kicked today's topic over to them uh, for a question and answer show. And Troy, I believe you were deluged with responses. Yeah, we had quite a few questions actually. I sent that a lot of them to. Um, I mean, Ask FM is the new place to get questions, I guess. Because I have a Tumblr, but it's not public yet, and it's not going to be for this place. Uh, so I just poked people to my Ask FM page, uh, ask.fm slash Troy Goodfellow, one word, if you want to ask me anything. Uh, but a lot of these questions, I sent people here for the last three or four weeks because I knew we had a Q&A show coming up. So I said, come and email me, ask me, whatever you want. So we got quite a few questions and we'll get to as many as we can. I promise that those we don't get to will get punted to a future show, because I think we should do this more often. Yeah, I think we should sort of keep a hopper half full of questions. Even if we do it like, you know, every half week, we do every twice, once a month, or once every few months, we do a show just for this. Uh, I think it'd be quite good. We've got a really good community building up in the forum. Um, and I get a lot of emails still. It'd be nice to get more engagement going. But yeah, I've got enough questions to do us this show and the next Q&A show, I think. Fantastic. De- depending, because this first question, oh my God, you're going to rant. What's about to happen? Okay. Tee, tee it up. This is your question. Uh, one of the great, one of the bad things about Ask FM is you cannot, there's no name attached unless uh, you register for the site. So there's no name for this one, or for most of them. So these are mostly anonymous, but here we go. Question. You guys have been consistent in your feelings that recent sci-fi strategy games are bland and boring. Something I agree with. Regardless, are you looking forward to anything? Is there anything out there that could break this trend? Well, I don't know that I'm... Okay, so I don't think I'm going to rant because I think you, there's an entire episode you could go listen to where I think I kind of, uh, you know... But that was even a very specific type of sci-fi strategy game. That was the sci-fi, you know, 4X game. We also have, you know, we have XCOM. We have Smack. I mean, it wasn't... It's not like sci-fi is just those Master of Orion, Galsiv, endless space, distant worlds type things. So do you want to clarify your feelings on sci-fi strategy games, or do you want to add some nuance that was not present in your rants with Paul? 
Well, I, you know, first of all, I think I, I think Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri absolutely does sort of fit the uh, Space 4X mold in some key ways. Like, I mean, really, if you if you look at its map of planet uh, and such, you could as easily say that's you know, like a lot of a lot of Forex games, you could say somehow that the space between cities is sort of deep space. Uh, but I, that's I, I, I feel like uh, Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri still fits within that mold, uh, and I'm going to strike XCOM from the list. I I, I just don't think that. Yeah, it, it is sci-fi, but I think it's not a sci-fi strategy game in the same sense we're talking about, right? Like, it again, it's 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 closer in kin to like uh, Jagged Alliance or something. It's it's still very grounded in you know uh, turn-based squad mechanics. I mean, it's really a tactical RPG in the right. parts that people recognize. Yeah, absolutely. So I so I don't think. I, I don't think those quite are, are, are exceptions uh, that the, the prove the rule necessarily. And I think Alpha Centauri is instructive, if only because, you know, if you look at the features that are included in it, it should fall victim to a lot of the same pitfalls that uh, sort of have plagued other games in the genre, but it evades almost all of them, with the possible exception of unit customization, just because everything is so freaking well executed. Uh, and you know, in, in so often execution is all, and I feel like a lot of games that are made in this space are uh, sort of painting by numbers based on other games that the designer and the potential audience have loved uh, in the genre's past. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, that's there's. I mean, we've, you, you and Paul talked about this on the podcast, which, I mean, I've mentioned this before. This is one of my absolute favorite podcasts of the entire scope of the series of, of the of 3MA, uh, because I think you and Paul really narrowed down one of the big problems of the sci-fi 4X genre is that it is so, so invested in being Master of Orion that it wants to be this you can build your own ships and you can be civilization and there's this whole big world missing the thing. One of the things that so many of these Forex games, sci-fi Forex games add that Massive Orion really just shooed completely is backstory. And unless you can, unless you can make your universe plug into the way the game is played, which Alpha Centauri did, um, Massive Orion it was really just background. Occasionally, you run into the old people in Massive Orion too, but really, it was just Civ in space. But you look at a lot of other 4X games, and they really try to push this really kind of lame backstory on you. Like, you're supposed to know who these races are and why their techs are different or why you need special lasers here or why your race suddenly forgot about lasers. Though so you got this far into the universe without laser level three, and it just kind of doesn't fit. Um, there's this, that's kind of, I think, my one of the weirdnesses of the sci-fi genre that I don't quite get. There are humans and all these other space people, and the humans have to start from scratch, more or less. Uh, as for games I'm kind of looking forward to, I have to admit, I mean, I knew Gal Civ 3 was coming, uh, because I have so many friends at Stardock, but I'm actually kind of excited about Gal Civ 3. Because uh, I really did like Galsif 2, even though it's very, I'll admit it, a very bland original version. There was a core, I mean, I read, I read it for Computer Games Magazine, I think I gave it 
four stars, four and a half stars out of five, there was such a strong, solid core understanding of what made a 4X game a good 4X game that I knew it would end up being someplace really special, which is where it was by the final expansion. I really think Galaxy of Three stands out. Um, I mean, you can pretty much ignore a lot of the shipbuilding crap and just focus on the empire building and the culture stuff and the technologies. And the tech tree got better and more involved all the way through. Though it did start, admittedly, with Laser 1, Laser 2, Laser 3, which bothered me, but there was a core appreciation of what a sci-fi game should look like. So I think Galaxy of 3 stands out for me as the sci-fi game on the horizon that I'm kind of looking forward to. Yeah, and I can't disagree with that. I, I think my... I, I, I cringed a little bit when sort of shipbuilding and ship customization was right there front and center uh, in the announcement, but it always is. It always is. It was there, is there in the any original. Way get, is there any way we can get rid of that? I mean, how can we get rid of ship customization? First, where did this come from beyond Massive Orion 2? I mean, no one plans a modern world or even, like, post-apocalyptic world and says, oh, you can build your own tank. Yeah, but you know, there's something unique about space and sci-fi. I mean, look how crazily technical manuals for Star Trek and Star Wars sell. Like, people, like, in a weird way, you have a rivet counting culture uh, in sci-fi every bit as much as you do in uh, historical historical wargaming. Even though though games like, even though Star Trek and Babylon 5 are so not about the rivet counting. <laughs> They're both so not about that, which makes just baff, just blows my mind. Yeah, no, it's it's actually it's crazy, right? Because like, what is the relative strength of any two warships in the Star Trek universe? Whatever the story requires that to be. No, that is that is how the universe is run. And yet, yeah, you do have this. Uh, you you do have the sense that this stuff this stuff matters, and that I think also then sort of carries forward into people just becoming a standard feature here where, well, if you like other people's spaceships, how good must it be to create your own? Now you're your own, uh, you know, technical manual creator. And I don't think, I don't like, I think if we, I think if we could get away with it, get away from it, we would have by now. I think the issue is it becomes such a genre expectation and so much yeah. of the fan base for these games apparently like apparently expects this. Uh, that it's going to remain because for some people it's going to be a major feature they care about and then for others you hope to make it just unobtrusive enough that it won't bother them so much. Right. Well, here's a question that kind of piggybacks onto that. I think it, uh, that's a pretty decent question. It's something, something I've asked myself and I've played so many games over the last little while. Uh, historical strategy war games like Paradox, Civilization, Hypothetical, mm-hmm. Speculative, Red Storm Rising, other World War Three game scenarios, or purely fictional 4X space colonization games, and the very other end, abstract games like chess. Which do you prefer? This is the broadest question we've ever been asked. Yeah, I'd like to hear your answer first. I like the ones in the on both ends. I like historical strategy war games. I really do like feeling like I am there. Same reason that I'm really deep into you know, historical movies. Uh, just to take myself, even as bad as most historical movies are, just to take myself to another world and uh, see how this is being portrayed and understood. And I think that how developers translate 
historical strategy war games, how they understand them, helps me understand both history and games better. Because I know the history most of the time, not always, but if I don't, I will then go learn it. And I know game design a little bit. And I think this makes me a better critic, a better thinker, I understand history better, and games better. So that's one reason. And the other I really love abstract strategy games. I mean, I love chess. I'm bad at it. I'm a bad, bad chess player. Um, but I do like and go. I'm worse at go, but chess is bad. Chess is probably the worst. Um, they are games that are just about here are the pieces, what can they do? And it's... A lot of board games are like this. I mean, there are themes attached to them, but really they're just abstract worker placement value optimization games. I mean, there's nothing about a Kalos that has anything to do with building a castle anywhere. I think that's why I kind of really like worker placement board games in that they are so abstract. They're titled roughly to a theme, but they're just so much about what can you do when? What are your opportunities? Stone Age is, I think, my favorite. Uh, so the abstract worker placement games like Stone Age and Kalos, I love how those work so, so deeply. Um, do they work as well as a PC game? No, not really. Um, I mean, Bronze, I think, is a good example. I mean, Bronze has a theme attached to it, but it's really just an abstract, you know, you pick your various powered asymmetrical race and you claim tiles. It's a quite abstract game with just a neat theme attached. Um, but in the board game real space, I love the stuff that is just about where is the math? Uh, in the computer console space, because the math is so under the hood, I really want something I can relate to. And I can relate, I think, most strongly to stuff that's happened, to history I understand and history I feel. Yeah, I think, just in general, my, my preference actually, I think, is fairly consistent across just about any platform on this question. Uh, mm -hmm. These days, and I think for me, I, I prefer something a little more thematic. Um, but where the abstraction comes in is, I want there to be just enough abstraction that it doesn't get bogged down in too much detail. I don't need history to reenact itself in right. a game. Right. And I feel that's the pitfall of historical strategy in wargaming is that there is this tendency to. No, I want it like I want to create a game that sort of covers all the things you'll read about in the history books, all the concerns, all the variables. We have to create a rule and a, a mechanic for all of them. And that just that that goes too far. What I want is and I mean we come to the, we come back to this game often, but uh, it's useful because uh, the game I'm talking about is, is Twilight Struggle. That's right. a useful case of it's actually pretty a pretty abstract um, uh, territory control game. Uh, you know, if you could if you could retheme it uh, in a number of ways, and the game has been rethemed a number of ways. Though interestingly, usually uh, in the context of a subject of actual historical interest, like uh, uh, 1960 making of a president and a labyrinth of war on terror. So I think a game like that is is kind of instructive because it. It, it, it pairs down the subject matter that its theme is about 
uh, through the lens of abstraction in a way that is incredibly useful uh, and incredibly fun to right. play. And I think that's that's sort of the sweet spot. And that, now, what that sweet spot means changes depending on, like you said, whether you have a PC sort of crunching the numbers behind the scenes or not. But I think the sum effect on, on whatever platform you're using should roughly land you in the same place. There should be, you know, only so much fussing about with game pieces and, uh, you know, uh, small factors. Uh, you sh- it feels like it should, your, your focus should usually be on broader and, you know, more abstracted questions. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Twilight Struggle, I think, is, I think, in like 50 years' time, it will still be held up as one of the landmark designs uh, in board game design. And just thinking about how games work, um, it's uh, an outstanding title. Uh, I'm looking forward to Ananda Gupta's uh, English-French game because... As he mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, this, the fact that there were wars mixes up that entire formula completely because you end up with throwing history into an ahistorical thing. Um, you don't just have two places you know, dancing around each other. Um, so that's going to be a nice, fun little game to watch come out. Um, I, 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 I take your point. I mean, it, it's... I mean, abstractness is kind of subjective, right? I mean, how... If you think about what, I mean, I can make the strong case that Civilization is an abstract history game because it isn't in history. It's got historical stuff going on. It's also an historical path, but it's not about history. There's mm-hmm. nothing in that game that is historical at all. I mean, I could have you know, legions as a Roman super unit and, you know, Americans look hard before them until they get their their B-17s, which makes zero sense. Uh, but the game is outstanding. I mean, the civilization throughout the entire series has been one of my favorite series of games ever. And But you can make a case that it is not an historical game. It is a fancy dress abstract game um, with you know, pieces that have different powers that change, yeah. but it's they're just given historical names. It's not set in history. It's not about history. It's beyond history. It's above history. Um, but it teaches you things about, well, roughly, when things happen in historical order. Um, but whether it is an historical game or not depends on where you draw that line. Um, I I think it counts as an historical game because it tries to, you know, mimic rough historical processes. But I can make a strong case that it is not that either. That it is a purely abstract game in fancy dress. I would say just like on the spectrum of PC games that have to do with history, I think it falls pretty far along the the abstract. Well, first of all, like really abstract games really do not exist that much uh, on PC. Uh, PC no. tends to be very literal, no, they're, very they're, they're, they're really the space of, of 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 board games for the most part. Yeah, there's there's no uh, there's no Reiner Knizia, uh, you know, designing for PC really. Um, so for that by that score, I think I would say it's uh, it, it's more abstract. I mean, you're catching me on a day where I've spent uh, much of the day trying to get into um, Ajod's uh, Civil War Two, uh, and that's just a case where I, I sort of fired it up. And I was immediately confronted with 
the you know eastern half of the United States uh, at the start of the Civil War, and there's all these little supply wagons running around, uh, a bunch of crummy little brigadier colonels and such. And I'm staring at that, and I'm thinking they love their supply wagons. They they do. I'm staring at him thinking, perhaps too little abstraction. Uh, and the fact that, so I mean, for me, that's kind of like, today you're catching me on a, uh, on a, on a day when, uh, when I've spent much of the day sort of beating my head against uh, historical truth, historical yeah. reality. Uh, and so the, the sense of what is abstract and what is uh, a more historical game is a little skewed for me today. Or maybe considering what, what's available on PC... Maybe I have a better, a slightly more accurate read on what's historical and what's not uh, on PC, at least. Well, let's move on to the next question, which is, um, I'll throw it to you. Uh, which do you prefer more? Agglutinative titles. I didn't know that was a word. Uh, like Civ Five and Crusader Kings 2, which add expansions and mechanics over time. Or smaller focused experiences, like Unity of Command, which explore one idea and then drop the mic. Well, first, the, the, the book has not been completely written on Unity of Command. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, with, with the Barbarossa campaign. Right. Uh, but I, I, do, I do take the point that it is about one central idea. And, uh, it's, and that idea is supply. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it does that idea very well. And I think, you know, here I'm going to... Um, here I'm going to toss it back to uh, Provost Zakharov in uh, in Alpha Centauri, uh, and that quote he has. You gotta stop relying on Zakharov. I'll stop relying on Plato. You you stop relying on Zakharov. Yeah, but the quote is the quote catches so much when he talks about, uh, you know, we we, you know, there's two kinds of scientific progress. One is the staggering leap of genius and insight that carries humanity forward uh, all at once. And then there's the slow, steady creation of knowledge, uh, the incrementalism uh, that comprises most science. And while acknowledging our debt to uh, the latter, we yearn nonetheless for the former. And I feel like that's that sums up a relationship to a lot of things. When you see a game that just nails an idea beautifully to the wall, and it's a fun game. You don't, uh, good God, no, those are, those are those are those tend to be extraordinary experiences, and you you take those all day long. Uh, but you don't get many of them. Uh, most things, you know, you, you have the germ of a good idea and you build from it and then you think about, you know, more good ideas that go along with it. And the result is something like, you know, perhaps a Civilization five, uh, you know, where by the end I felt it had become a much more complete uh, and even more interesting strategy game uh, from sort of uh, John Schaefer's sort of purest design uh, to a slightly more complicated, but I also found... Uh, slightly more rewarding uh, game with Brave New World. And even that, I mean, to take this back even further, I remember playing the very first Civilization in college. I mean, that was a bolt from the blue. That was something that, you know, the idea of playing throughout history was something me and my friends had talked about for, you know, a couple of years. Then this game shows up that it was... It was uh, D- 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 Danny Barry and Sid Meier, the only people thinking this was even possible. And you know, Danny Barry was busy doing something else, so Sid beat her to the punch uh, with this idea. And that was a bolt from the blue. And then it turned into a franchise. Uh, I think my favorite story of Civilization 
is, you know, it cleaned up the GDC awards, and Meyer wasn't there, but Bill Steely was. And he apparently, slightly inebriated, called Sid and said, so your stupid game won all these awards. And that's, <laughs> you know, because it wasn't the game anyone expected to... Because he'd done flight sims and pirates. And then he does this thing that just no one expected. Um, so we look at things like uh, Civilization Now, we see this monolithic huge franchise, but it itself was a lightning bolt. Uh, Crusader Kings, the very first Crusader Kings, I mean, even when I was writing before I was doing PR for Paradox, I'd often said the first Crusader Kings was not the best Paradox game, but it was my favorite because it introduced all of these really new, neat, interesting interpersonal mechanics into a strategy game. CK2 just just blew that out of the water. Um, just did amazing, amazing, amazing things. It continues to do amazing things. Uh, and I can say this not just because they're paying me secondhand, uh, but because I think that's a consensus, uh, that Paradox really... Uh, it had been around for a while, but I think it really stick, stuck it, staked its mainstream mark uh, with Crusader Kings 2. Um, but that is not a new idea. It's an idea they've been working on. Uh, and now they're iterating it because now we're in a world where DLC is something you can iterate constantly, which wasn't the case for the last, for the, like 12 years, I guess. I mean, expansion pack, expansion pack, expansion pack. I mean, Rise of Nations had ex two expansion packs. Why couldn't they have done those through uh, DLC? Because there was no DLC. This wasn't the place for that. Um, so I think we always see this, I think we look at these franchises now and think that, well, they're just milking. But in fact, it's, the business models change and they're already established. The bolts and the blue are quite rare. And Unity of Command, I think, is one. I think it really is a amazing, amazing war game. Um, there are there's stuff that I'm playing in early access that I think has a potential to be that. I won't mention any names because I don't want to prejudice anybody's chances of getting there, and some of them might be clients in the future because we're working on them. But there's some really neat stuff going on early access that could be um, great new things. Uh, but I really have gotten to love refinement. I really love how games get refined and improved over time. Um, because, like you said, Rob, it's so rare to get a Unity of Command. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and because it's so much easier, I think, to just keep adding. Uh, we all, we're all guilty of it. And I think when you are starting out... But, 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 but should we feel guilty about it? That's the thing. Should we feel guilty about having a design that works and just keep improving it? Well, but I think, but I think there's a difference between. I, I think it's telling that uh, Tomislav sort of belted it out of the park with his first game, but it was like, which is Unity of Command, uh, you know, because this is clearly the product of a lot of thinking about war games. This is clearly yes. a mature design yeah. that has really been thought about. Not just like I like war games with hexes and supply and stuff like that. I want to make a game like that, which would just result in sort of shallow imitation. But really, this is a game that you know sort of stems from you know a deeper insight into what these games do well, and then areas where they had previously sort of fallen short, and why supply mechanics uh, weren't 
so successful, um, you know, in, in maybe more sophisticated games. Of, it's sort of this, I mean, we could do. We've done a show on you know, DFK. I'm yeah. sure we'll do. An, I'm sure we'll do another one uh, when the Barbarossa thing comes out. I hope you get Thomas Lafon for that uh, because there's this whole sideways thinking I think that happens in the really best games. They aren't purely entirely original, uh, but they take established ideas and they just move them a bit to the left or a bit to the right, one way or the other. Um, Unidificant is essentially about supply. Um, but why is it about supply? It's not because Thomas Loff loves logistics. If he loved logistics, this would be a math game. Yes. But it's not. It's about, it's about supply because that's how Blitzkrieg worked. Because you need to protect and encircle. and It's all about the quick movement and encircling without getting cut off yourself. Uh, but encircling without being encircled. That's how Blitzkrieg worked well. Uh, on the counter side, on the Soviet side, on using manpower to overwhelm uh, mechanics. It's this very high-level understanding of the Eastern Front, which leads to the conclusion, well, this is how it's supply. And that's... So the game is is about supply and about movement and protection. And it's really an elegant, elegant game that is sideways from another masterpiece like War in the East, which is a huge, glorious masterpiece of a game by being everything. I mean, this is... If War in the East is The Last Supper, Unity of Command is Judas's face. Yeah, and something else, too, is just, I, I feel like some of the some of the best examples of games that have been sort of iterated on and iterated on, it's important that you know you're starting from somewhere strong. I mean, the, the, these, the, the, the games we've cited have tended to come from proven developers who've had that same, that same amount of time to sort of think over their own design. Um, I think you run to more trouble when you see sort of... Uh, sort of newer efforts in sort of established genres uh, where you, you, you end up with something, uh, you know, to give a good example uh, would be a game like Endless Space where it, right. it's, it's a very good execution on the, the fundamentals of the genre. The problem is there isn't a lot of new stuff said there or done there. Uh, and and you, you, end up, you, know, you end up with, okay, it's got a little bit of ship design, uh, it's got a bit of exploration. It becomes a little bit of imitation because sort of tracing the sprawl of a genre that's already existed, that was already sort of created by this, you know, accretion of new ideas and, and new mechanics. Um, where, I, you know, I, I, I feel like you know the 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 sort of novice, the independent uh, strategy developers maybe have some of the the best the the best success are the people who sort of have come in and. Uh, you know, are thinking more about have, are, are thinking are, are thinking sideways, like you said. Okay, so let's go on to the next question. Uh, we get so many to choose from here. Um, if someone give you money to buy a miniatures war game, enough for multiple armies, what game would you try? So, do you know? Do you happen to know what the name of the best Napoleonic minis game is? Because I, I would just buy it. I would just buy it. Like. Tell me what the best Napoleonic minis game is, and that's what I would do with my million dollars. So um, why? So why a Napoleonic uh, miniatures game? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, have you seen the uniforms? 
Good God. They are they, they are pretty. Yeah, talk about getting your money's worth, right? Like, even, even Games you, you, Workshop can't... You gotta paint can't... those, dude. You don't have to paint those. No, 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 no. I have a million dollars. Someone's gonna paint them for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, someone's totally gonna paint them uh, in historically accurate uniforms, uh, and they'll be the best. Uh, that that That's really part of it. Uh, would be just these. I mean, minis are partly about splendor, right? I mean, it's, no, they're all they're all about the decoration. Yeah, I, I do think there's interesting sort of uh, there's interesting mechanical things you can do with minis because you're playing on a map with like actual terrain and distances measured out. Well, a, a lot depends on the rule set, right? I and mean, there's some really great yeah. rule sets out there. I I don't know enough on Napoleonic miniatures to get. I mean, I know the ancients miniature stuff reasonably well. Uh, but the Napoleonics and War, a little bit of Warhammer, but Napoleonics, World War II stuff. I mean, that's just beyond me. So what what would you get? I I would get an ancient set, of course, because that's who I am. I'd get an ancient set of something, uh, probably you know late Republican Roman or Seleucid or maybe maybe Carthaginian if I felt really lame. Uh, but I mean, for the rule set, I'd probably go with the the, the Field of Glory stuff. Uh, the Slytherin people worked with, uh, with the Osprey folk, which is kind of an improved version of the uh, Debellus uh, Antiquatus stuff, which is which is a standard tournament for like fifteen twenty years now. Um, I just love how simple that rule set is, how clear it is, uh, how there isn't a whole lot of weird dice stuff going on whether things can happen or not uh i there's a lot of flexibility in it and but really i would get an ancient roman army there's just so many good armies out there you can get a lot of color in it there's understanding or this weirdness that oh all roman armies look the same well no they really didn't there wasn't any standardized uniform really until i mean even post marius for a long time there was quite a bit of variation in how armies actually how legions actually looked because these were guys that were paid pretty much to sign up now maybe the general would have the money to buy you your standard equipment but maybe he wouldn't uh, so you get quite a bit of variety you get some nice color in there well, you're talking about long-term deployments at very different climates, facing very different adversaries. Yeah, well. there's all kinds of stuff going. I mean, you're, the the guy you may recruit a guy in Liguria, and oh, sorry, you're you're in Syria now. Um, am I going to buy you another uniform just because I'm Pompey? Probably not, because I'm fucking Pompey. Why am I going to buy you a uniform? You know, get your own stuff. Um, so there'd be some variation in color, and each each legion each would have its own traditions. Uh, so you could do some nice stuff with color there. Plus all the local units. If you think about, if you want to do an Eastern Roman army, you have not just the mercenaries from the West, where you'd have you know, you know Gallic horsemen and Balearic slingers and Cretan archers, but you'd have all these all this other great variety in you know skin tones and armor from the local mercenaries. I would probably yeah, I think a late Roman Eastern army. Was it be the army that I'd get and that I'd play? Something from, you know, Lucullus, Pompey, Crassus, Antony, that entire period where you have in the late Republic, early Empire, um, just so much variety and who are our allies, who are our enemies? Um, are the Armenians our friends or not this year? Um, you can get cataphracts in there if you want, if you try hard enough. Uh, I really just love 
the variety and unit type. Now, of course, building a miniature army, you get into the work, the, all the math stuff. You can't field the largest possible army. You have to, there's a certain point, each unit with a certain number of points. So it's, does this look right? And does it add up enough? Um, so I love that sort of math that goes on in the late Republic because the alliances were just so fluid. So just while you're talking there, I think I found my game, by the way. Oh, you're, what is your game? Uh, so Grand Armee, it's a miniature system uh, uh -huh. for like Grand Tactical uh, Miniatures Wargaming. Uh, so divisional core level. Um, and I mean... I mean, we will link to it in the uh, comment thread on the podcast. But uh, Troy, I think you should just feast your eyes on uh, this yeah. baby. Um, a, I'm, I'm, you must have tons of miniature places there in Boston. Well, you know, the problem is you, you'd think so. But, well, okay, so there's Pandemonium in Central Square, uh, which our buddy Julian will swear by. But like a lot of miniature shops, that's sort of become a 40K minis uh, shop. I mean, we talk about like market share and everything. It's... It's really Games Workshop, uh, just about anywhere you go. And the place that used to have space uh, in downtown Cambridge, um, Complete Strategist, uh, moved out uh, due to not being able to afford the space anymore, I gather. What? Yeah, I know. What? So now they're in Boston, but down by BU. Uh, but the problem is they've lost the uh, huge game table space. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there's not there's actually fewer opportunities than you'd think to set up uh, sort of like something in the picture I just showed you, but, but even, uh, just, which but has even, like just, core and division array for Waterloo. You can be able to buy them, right? Uh, in terms of buying minis like this, I'm not even sure I could get that. This might See, actually be a specialty internet purchase. Yeah, or a model shop. That's what I've found here in Toronto. It's a place that sells models. Also, it has to sell miniatures. You wouldn't think of it. Huh. But I mean, there's this great place. Uh, our friend did Desklock, uh, Stefan Janicki, old friend, PC gamer, RPG columnist forever. Um, this is a model shop out in the Danforth that I went to a couple of months ago. Tons of miniatures, along with, you know, model tanks and model planes, uh, but also model armies. So I could buy a whole set of Canaanite warriors if I so chose. Uh, so this might be something you might want to look for. Absolutely. Uh, so next question. Next question. Did the combat mission games ever become fun again? Oh. That's just a rude question. Yeah. Come on. Did they? I don't know. Define fun. Like, what's fun? Like, why weren't, like, you know, what wasn't fun for you? Like, I think... I, I, I think... guess, I mean, I, I played a little bit of the most recent Normandy... But really, I kind of lost a lot of my love after their, you know, Gulf War thing. Uh, I mean, the combat mission games will always stand out for me as some oh, of the best, right. they made best that game. war games ever made. I mean, the, the, the first combat mission series, the World War II stuff for combat mission, they still stand out from Battlefront as some of the best war games ever made nonstop. They're landmark titles. When I write my book, they get a chapter. I mean, it's just unstoppable. Uh, but they're... It was in Syria at the time, but there was so-called Gulf War. Is this is this real time? Is this turn based? It's 3D. It's there's just so many weird things going on that took them so long to fix that I kind of I I, I don't want to say lost my love. I mean, it's a weird thing. Combat missions in the same space that the Total War games are with me after Rome, I guess. 
after Rome 2, where I love the idea of the game, but I just can't fight my way through it anymore. After Rome 2, you say? Yeah, combat, the current combat missions are kind of, the, kind of like where Rome yeah. 2 has, okay. has with the Total War games. It's, okay, I've you've this is just such a letdown in so many ways that it takes a lot for me to work up the excitement again yeah and that's that's a, that's something interesting because i've noticed this happen too so i would say so i think mercifully i skipped the entire combat mission modern warfare thing i don't remember the name of it it was like i want to say i had an m name it was like modern it felt, yeah. felt like mobile was it like modern was it was it kind of mission modern i thought it was like mobile striker or i don't know yes got mission strike force or something yeah yeah and it was just yeah that that did not go over well uh and i heard it was eventually patched into a decent shape shock force. But... Combat mission shock force shock force that's right so i played combat mission uh combat mission 2 the uh the 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 return to normandy and I liked it. Um, Charlie Charlie Hall uh, has been on the show, and he writes for Polygon. He he, he loved it. Uh, so I, I think it, it's one of those things where I, I definitely felt that the most recent one brought back a lot of what was great about Beyond Overlord. The problem is, and it kind of speaks to what you were just saying, Troy, I feel like it, with series in particular... Once they sort of break faith, once they sort of stumble, it's really surprisingly hard to recapture the magic. Sometimes it's like you, you know, it, that it breaks it breaks its hold over you just enough for your preferences to change as a gamer, your life changes, whatever, and you never quite go back to being that person who was so hung up on that game. Like I, I sort of feel like uh, Empire Total War did that for me a little bit. I loved Napoleon. I loved Shogun, but the thing is, prior to Empire, I was the sort of guy who, I mean, you like, I, I set major events in my life based around what Total War game I was playing at the time. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I was, you know, seventy, eighty, hundreds hours in, uh, in in games prior to Empire, and after Empire, even though the games got a lot better, I never lost myself to those games like that again. Hmm. It's um. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing. I mean, it's, a lot of it's time in my in my case. I just don't have time for a lot of games anymore. Um, not as much as I'd like to. I'm really picky and choosy, but t- there is this weird feeling when a series just exhausts you. Um, and I think Shock Force did that for me to an extent. Though, I mean, I will always you know I will always check out the Battlefront games because I think they do have a sincere and devoted love for what they're doing. I think they actually do try to understand and make good games, which is more than I can say for other war game developers, which I will, whose names I will not mention. Um, but there is, I think the real-time stuff just doesn't fit. I kind of, I wonder what the, if I need that much of a, that much power. It's, it's, it's kind of this, do I need this? The same with Rome, with Rome too. Do I need this much power? The game is asking me to do so little. Yeah. Um, does I need to consume this much of my computer's energy uh, to just wait a turn? Uh, and this is so. The, I, did they get fun again? I would say, check them out. If you have the disposable income, I would say check them out and give it a try. If you didn't like Shock Force. Uh, there are a lot of reasons not to like Shock Force, some of which are connected to just translating the modern era to that engine, to that idea. 
which is not an easy thing. And this is something we've talked about in the podcast. Modern warfare does not necessarily fit smoothly into war game conventions. And Shock Force, as much as it tried to set up this, it tried to set up this, you know, tank war for Syria in the modern era, when all of us playing it playing it knew that an American force in Syria would not be fighting this kind of war. This is not the type of war that they would, they would be in Iraq war, it would be insurgency, it would be IEDs, there would be nothing like, very little like what we saw in Shock Force. So there was this kind of betrayal of the fidelity of the setting. But you don't get that in Normandy at least. You, you still have straight up tank battles and fightings for hedgerows. Um, so it's coming back. I think Battlefront uh, is going somewhere with that. Is it a game I invested a lot more time in? No. Is it a game I want to invest more time in? Yes. Uh, but multiplayer. It's a game now I would only play multiplayer. Uh, because I just need to talk trash. Next question. Next question. Uh, leading on that. The best multiplayer strategy game of the year this far. Hmm. You know what I'm going to say. What are you going to say? I'm going to say March of Eagles. Huh. It's, it's a bit of a cheat since they're a client, but oh my god, I love playing March of Eagles. That was really uh, good. Multiplayer, because you can do it with like seven people each in charge of a major Napoleonic power. And it is a kind of game where, unlike a lot of grand strategy games that have, you know, very, oh, your objectives are what you say they are. Right. The game tells you, here is what you need to do to win. Um, so you're pushing towards that, which means that your alliances are constantly shifting. You can't just make an alliance and hold on to it forever because... Maybe it will pay off your objectives like 10 years down the road. You need to make awkward pieces just to survive. Um, you need to cut a deal with somebody you hate and give up an objective they need because you need to get your soldiers off to fight off somebody else. I just love the chaos of it. Uh, I love the negotiation of it. I loved how it was... I mean... Um, I'm I'm working on this series of posts on books I've read and how they connect to international you know, the games and history and the like, and real it really is you know uh, this book I read about Napoleon's wars that is all about we don't we look at the history now as all these coalitions and we don't understand how all these coalitions were based on the short term interests very often of these countries. And the only country with a long-term interest in the entire thing was Great Britain. Uh, everyone else was kind of just fighting for their skin. And I think March of Eagles, uh, yeah, they're a client, but I just fell in love with this game in multiplayer. It was just... My highlight of the year, Rob, is me cutting off your armies in White Russia. Oh my god, that was such a... I, like, you, you move through Prussia, I make alliances to close the doors behind you, and I cede territory in the Caucasus to Greg Tito of the escapist in Turkey just so I can crush your French armies. Yeah. Oh my god, that was such a disaster. Second highlight of the year was 
AJ, uh, TJ Hafer, he was Sweden and I was Russia, and he got his soul, he got his army stuck on an island in Sweden. That's, yeah. And I had a bigger navy, and I just kept them there. They just could not move. It was beautiful. Yeah, so... So yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that's my multiplayer game of the year. Boy, you know, I mean, when you say it, when you, you, you remind me of it, and I think I probably enjoyed multiplayer with that more than any other... Um, with the possible exception of EU4, the problem there is I didn't have the same multiplayer experience once the game was released. Now, I haven't tried since a number of patches we, have gone by really the boards. Should. I think, I mean, I know that Bruce Garrick's been asking about whether we yeah, can multiplayer we, game. We, we revisit that because that's an important question because it, it, it has the potential to be every bit as tremendous a multiplayer game uh, as March of the Eagles. Although March of the Eagles has this wonderful focus on exactly yeah. what you described, where it's like sort of like diplomacy but with a little more agency over the entire thing. Just the constant wheeling and dealing uh, is fantastic. Uh so yeah, I mean, I, I think generally strategy has trouble tossing up great multiplayer games. And uh, well, you've seen a lot of StarCraft this year. Where, where does a new StarCraft expansion fit? No, I think you end up in a situation where I mean, you you can kind of see this coming, right? It's it's still a good multiplayer RTS, um, but I I still feel like it's 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 got the same advantages and drawbacks that StarCraft Two did, and I don't think it's going to win a lot of new converts. I don't think it has won a lot of new converts. Uh, and I think it's kept people who are already engaged in the game. Uh, they've continued to be engaged. Um, there may be, there, you know, but overall, I would have to say the reception's been probably a little flatter than uh, Blizzard was hoping, a little flatter than I was hoping, uh, both from an esports perspective and in terms of how often I see people playing. Um, and I think part of that goes to, you know, the, when you're dealing with a competitive game like this, the changes you make tend to be a bit conservative. Uh, and I think that happened a little bit here. And sadly, a lot of the more interesting units, I find, um, are you know just didn't get a lot of play. Uh, sort of the, Z the Zerg Swarm Host being, I think, my favorite, right. uh, which is kind of the siege unit that spawns like uh, free units, uh, basically. And if you get enough of them, a critical mass, uh, you can have basically endless, like, uh, not human wave, but Zergling wave, uh, attacks from these guys, uh, which is pretty cool. But overall, I think probably slightly too conservative an expansion. Um, and then I would say a war game, uh, Airline Battle, uh, would be another really good pick for for multiplayer action. Uh, it's I'm, a really I'm cool really, game. Really, I'm really really bad at that. It's a very hard game. There's a lot of moving pieces, uh, and I think you know we talked about this on the show. It's uh, it's 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 a bit of an issue uh, with that game. It was more of an issue for me than it was with uh, Bruce or Tom, but they are both kind of savants at this kind of game for different reasons. Uh, well, okay, Tom is a savant at this kind of game, and Bruce just sort of goes along because uh, he understands Cold War tech. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I, those, you know, I, all things considered, I, I think probably um, March of the Eagles is a really good pick for if you just want some, you know, fast, grand strategic uh, multiplayer. Mind you, God, but, it's so but you, good. But, but you need at least five friends to play it, right? This isn't something you can just play with two other people. No, you need the major powers to be staffed, because the AI does not play that game particularly well, which is why I kind of dinged it uh, in the review. Right. Uh, it's an amazing game with, with, with friends. Not a terribly good game without them. Uh, and that's, you know, that, as is often the case with a great multiplayer game. 
Um, you know, it, it sings yeah, with humans. I mean, here I am. I don't want to be, I'm not Pierre Schill. Tonight, tonight I don't care anymore. But it's kind of the inverse of the usual paradox model, right? This is a game that shines in a mode that the grand strategy games have generally just been unfriendly with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it was probably, you know, it, it also sort of marks a transition moment where I think Paradox start taking multiplayer more seriously, right. trying to roll it out and broaden the appeal of it. And I think they, they're they largely succeeding. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's a very interesting inversion, in part because the things that limit it as a, strate- uh, a strategy game uh, make it really uniquely adapted to being a good multiplayer game. It can be played to completion in a few sessions, uh, whereas EU4, you know, good luck with that, buddy. <laughs> okay, let's move on to a little uh, bit This should of probably be our last question, okay, too, because I'm getting the dinner. Okay. A nice light question. The ideal cocktail to drink while playing EU4 or Civ 5. Okay, so, I mean, I don't you're, have you're, a... You're, you're the drinking expert, so... <laughs> yeah, but I, the problem is I'm a drinking expert because, I, I mean, I'll drink damn near everything. Um, I I, so, I feel okay, like let, let, let's make this more broadly. Are there are there games that you associate with certain drinks or drinks that you think fit certain game, if not titles, experiences? Yeah, I you know I think with a game you know with with a game like EU Four, uh, where my session's probably liable to stretch on a bit and such. Um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get I don't want to hit it too hard. Uh, I don't want to just get messed up. So, like, as much as uh, colonialism encourages the consumption of martinis, uh, you're probably better off with... What? Yeah. No, rum. That's, yeah, that's another good option. I guess I view myself as as more the Churchillian model of colonialist and imperialist um, governing it rather than winning it, perhaps. I see. Uh, But anyway... So yeah, with the, with, in that in that case, I think my go to my my go to long haul uh, strategy game drinks uh, tend to be Negronis or Boulevardiers. Uh, they're very nice and light, um, but they're still really good cocktails, do you want to and you can go are? for a while. Because well, they're kind of variations on the same drink. The Negroni's the the base, uh, so it is one part gin uh, for the Negroni, uh, for the Boulevardier, it's one part bourbon, uh, and then one part uh, Campari. And one part uh, sweet vermouth, and at that point you are you are golden. Uh, a, a slice of orange or a bit of orange zest is uh, good to add there as well. But either way, you're fine. Uh, and they're both, yeah, uh, you know, strong, uh, but not too strong, and you can go for a while. What about you, Troy? I'm just a beer person generally. Um, I mean, if I have scotch, I'm with people. I'm um, having fun, and I only buy really good scotch if I have company coming over, generally. Um, like last New Year's, I bought a $90 bottle of scotch because John Schaefer was in town, so he got a $90 bottle of scotch. Uh, but from the games I play, um trying to think. I think Tropico goes with gin and tonic for some oh, reason. Yeah. I play that's one of the few games where the setting just I need something that's cool and light. And if I need to drink when I'm playing a game, which I generally don't, uh when I choose to, it will be something if the game dictates the content of my glass, it will be something like Tropico, where the theme is just so heavy. Um something like EU four, I can just sit and drink 
hot chocolate. Yeah. Also, let's be let's be real here. You can you can play you can play Tropico just blast it out of your mind. You'll be just fine. Oh yeah, you're just messing with stuff anyway, and you'll still survive. You'll come back to your save game and you'll be ten thousand dollars up somehow. Just by yeah. magic. Whereas I had many cocktails during a game of uh, March of the Eagles, and I'm pretty sure that's when I decided to invade Russia. I'm pretty was, sure I was I, fairly I loaded. You, you were not at your most sober at that moment, but I but I'll tell you, I sobered I sobered right the fuck up when I realized that my army was getting cut off. Boy, that was that that, that got me. I was, you, I was good. You were, you were cruising until then. It was beautiful. Yeah, and then uh, I realized, like, hey, I have no manpower reserves, and oh dear. Who, who was playing pressure? Who was pissing everyone off by not surrendering? Uh, it was Joe. Uh, Joe Robinson. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe, this is why you're not welcome back in the show anymore. That's Pretty much, because he's a bit of a, he was a bit of a prick with Prussia. Yep. So yeah, so yeah, that, I think that's about it for tonight. Now, we have lots of questions left uh, for our next show coming up. But please, if you have any more questions for us, uh, some of these I can probably answer on my own ask because um, they're kind of stupid questions. I'll answer them anyway, like Autobots and Decepticons. Pff, the answer is Care Bears. So it's a stupid question. Uh, but uh, the others we'll save for a future show. Um, we will be doing more of these. We love your feedback. Please rate us on iTunes. Uh, three moves ahead if you like us, no matter where you are. And visit our forum. We have, I had people posting on the Flash of Steel Facebook page praising ah. me for the show. It's like, we have a forum now. Um, so why don't you go there and tell Rob how much you love the fact that he ripped Rome to a, a new one. It is true. Uh, so yeah, you should head on over to idlethumbs.net slash 3MA and check us out or just survey the fine uh, podcasts available at Idle Thumbs generally. Uh, and as always, our thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this episode together. And we'll be back next week with a proper topic and a fuller panel. Until then, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you for your questions. We greatly appreciate your interest.